Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Let's have a seat. So raise your hand if you have ever walked into a restaurant and seen something like this. There's a family or a group of friends having a meal together, except instead of talking to each other, they are all looking at their phones. (laughs) Ever seen anything like that? I'm not going to ask you if you've ever been part of a scene like that. If I did, I would have to raise my hand, I admit. There is something really sad about this image of a group of people sitting together around a table while they are each glued to their own device. And it's sad not just in a kids these days or technology is the end of civilization kind of way. I think what's sad about that picture is that it is an illustration of a paradox that I think all of us experience in one way or another which is that we long to be with others in a deep and meaningful way, and yet we are profoundly separated from others. We are wired for connection, but so often we live in isolation. But just in case you think this is a new phenomenon, that it is the result of the internet or smartphones or social media, I'm going to encourage you to take a look back at something a little bit older, a lot older, like all the way back to the beginning older, as in Genesis. What we find in the first chapters of Genesis, in the story of the creation of the world, is that we humans were made for relationship. We were made to be with, to be with God and to be with other people. We were made for withness. But the reality is that for too much of our lives, far too much of our lives, are marked by distance and by separation from God, from others, even in a way from ourselves. So listen to verses 26 and 27 of Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let us make a human in our image by our likeness. And God created the human in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now we know that humans are the only part of creation that are made in God's image, that are made to reflect God's very being. And that suggests that from the very beginning, God's desire in creating humans was to have a relationship with them, a relationship that is unique among all of God's creation. And then the fact that humans were created as male and female, not one, but two, makes clear that an essential part of being human is to be in relationship with other humans. As Adam says at the end of Genesis 2, when he sees Eve, the person God has made to be with him, he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
We humans were made to be with, to be with God, to be with others. We were made for withness. Of course, it didn't take very long for all of that to go south. And that's the tale that we read in our Old Testament lesson this morning. So we know the story, right? Adam and Eve are hanging out in the garden that God created. And then that devious serpent slithers up to Eve and says, Did God really say there's any tree in the garden you're not allowed to eat from? And then she tells the serpent that God had forbidden them to eat from the one tree in the center of the garden. And then the serpent goes into full temptation mode. You won't really die from, if you eat the fruit from that tree. God knows that if you eat the fruit, you'll, you'll wake up. You'll be wise. You'll know things that you can only dream about right now. You'll know not just that there's good, but also that there's evil. You'll actually become like God. Could that really be such a bad thing for you to do? Eve, of course, gives in. And Adam's there too, ready to give in right alongside her. And all of a sudden their eyes are opened, but they don't become like God. What they become is ashamed. They realize that they're naked and they're ashamed. And they make clothes out of fig leaves to cover their nakedness. Then God comes along on his regular stroll through the garden, and Adam and Eve hear God coming, and so they hide. But God looks for them. Where are you? God asks Adam. I have to think this was a little bit like an adult playing hide-and-seek with a child, because kids are really bad at hiding, you know? So Adam stammers from his not-very-good hiding place. Uh, I hid because I heard you were coming, and... I was afraid because I was naked. And God says, "Um, who told you that you were naked? It's God's way of stating the obvious, which is that Adam and Eve have been naked this whole time. And it's never really bothered them before. In other words, their hiding wasn't necessary. But even so, out of his kindness, just a few verses later, God makes them actual clothes out of animal skins. Since covering themselves seemed pretty important to Adam and Eve by now, and I'm going to guess their fig leaf designs were not very durable. So there are several things in this very familiar story that it's worth our paying attention to this morning. First... There's the matter of what it is, what in the serpent's temptation that Adam and Eve find so impossible to resist. The temptation is not the fruit of the tree itself. It's not like the serpent promises them that this fruit is like 8 million times tastier than any of the other fruit they've ever tasted. What tempts them is what the serpent tells them the fruit will do for them which is it will make them like God. The serpent's strategy is to make Adam and Eve discontent with just being made in the image of God. Instead, he wants them to long to be like God himself. 
The serpent's temptation was to make Adam and Eve reject being the beloved creation of their loving creator. So when Adam and Eve give in to this temptation to become like God, the result is a rupture in the relationship between God and Adam and Eve. God still wants to be with Adam and Eve. Remember, he calls after them, looking for them. But they no longer want to be with God. They're ashamed, so they withdraw, they hide, they separate themselves. This, I think, is such an important detail for us to notice. That the rupture in Adam and Eve's relationship with God isn't because God withdraws from them, it's because they withdraw from God. Adam and Eve's sin doesn't cause God to want to not be with them. It causes them to want to not be with God. And even so, God still loves them. He doesn't turn his back on them. He doesn't zap them into oblivion. Instead, he cares for them. He makes them clothes so they don't have to feel ashamed of their nakedness. Even when Adam and Eve withdraw from God, God moves toward them with love and with compassion. And in so many ways, we are so much like Adam and Eve. Voices of doubt creep into our heads and tell us that it's not good enough for us just to be with God. Those voices tell us, really, we deserve to be like God. To be in control of our own lives. To call the shots to decide how things ought to be. But the problem is that we're not very good at it. Because it's what, never what we were made to do. And so inevitably we make a mess of things. And what we end up with is separation from God. Not because God pulls away from us, but because we pull away from God. We feel ashamed of our failures, and so we hide ourselves from God. We refuse to let ourselves have the kind of relationship with God that God wants for us to have. We refuse to let ourselves simply be with God. And instead, we try to relate to God in some other way, on our own terms. And that can look like a lot of different things. It might look like trying to live according to the principles that we identify from the Bible. So we read the stories of the great heroes of scripture. We draw conclusions from their lives about what works. And then we try to live our lives according to those principles. Now, that might feel like a faithful way of living, But what it actually does is it lets us keep God at a distance. We don't have to bring God into our day-to-day existence as long as we're living according to the theories and the principles that we find in God's word. In a way, we even put those theories and principles over God himself. Or 
relating to God might look like working really hard to lead righteous and upright lives. We determine that we are going to live according to God's moral code. Not really so much because it's right, as because we think our obedience to God will make God happy with us. We try to live under God's rules, under his code, in an attempt to please God. The way we relate to God might also look like choosing to work really hard for God. Maybe that's a way that we serve the poor, or we lead a ministry at the church, or we just try to do something important with our lives that will make an impact for the kingdom. And we do this not out of freedom or out of joyful response to God's call, but because at some level we believe that God's disposition toward us depends on how much we do for him. And then there's the way of relating to God like he's kind of a cosmic Santa Claus. We see God as being in control of the things that we want. Things like material possessions or physical health or relationships. And so we try to be obedient because we believe that God will reward our obedience by giving us what we desire. We live life trying to see what we can get from God. We might think of these different ways of relating to God as different postures that we have toward God. Sky Jathani's written a book called With, Reimagining the Way You Relate to God, and he describes these different postures using prepositions. So it's life over God, life under God, Life for God and life from God. During this season of Lent, these six Sundays now, between now and Easter, we're going to be looking, taking a deeper look at these spiritual postures. And as we unpack these different ways of relating to God, one of the things that we will discover is that most of us tend to gravitate toward one or another of them. Most of us have a sort of default, a way of relating to God that is most comfortable or natural to us. And some of us will even discover that at some point in our lives, we have been explicitly and directly taught that one of those ways is the appropriate way to relate to God. I think, though, that if we approach this with openness and with humility, we'll discover that most of us relate to God in all of these ways at different points or different contexts in our lives. So perhaps when it comes to our personal relationships, we relate to God in one way, but when it comes to our professional lives, we relate to God in a different way. And that's not entirely a bad thing. Because each of these postures, each of these ways of relating to God has some truth in it, something good and positive because it reflects something about God's character or about ours. 
But what I hope this series will remind us all is that ultimately, God doesn't want any of those postures to be the primary way that we relate to him. God doesn't want us to live our lives over or under or from or for him. God simply wants us to live with him. And we know that God wants us to live with him because God came to live with us. God's decisive, redemptive work in the world was through the incarnation through coming to be with us. God could have chosen to send down a new set of stone tablets with some new rules on them. He could have given us a set of procedures to follow that had guaranteed outcomes. He could have given us a step-by-step list of tasks for us to complete so that we could fix the world ourselves. But God didn't do any of that. The thing that God chose to do was to be with us in a profound and tangible way in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That's why the words from the prologue of John's gospel that we heard this morning are so powerful. Why they resonate with us on such an emotional level. Because they convey in this beautiful language the intimacy and the connection that God wants to have with us. These verses describe for us a life with God. In the beginning was the Word, John writes, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I'm part of a covenant group with two other pastors. So every week, every Sunday evening, we have a phone call where we talk about how things are going in our relationship with God, and we choose a spiritual discipline to participate in together. So last summer, we were talking about how there are some seasons of life when it is really hard to trust God. There are times when, for all kinds of reasons, we feel distant from God, we might feel let down by God, and we question God's trustworthiness. And we decided that week that our spiritual discipline would be contemplative prayer. Prayer where we just open ourselves up to the awareness of God's presence. And the goal is to let that time be whatever it is without our trying to guide it or direct it. And one of the other pastors in this group who is a dear friend of mine, she will be the first to tell you that she's kind of terrible at contemplative prayer. She doesn't sit still very easily. Her mind wanders. She's an external processor, which is another way of saying that she likes to talk. And she has a lot to say, including in her conversations with God. So just showing up in contemplative prayer and not filling that time with her own words or thoughts is really hard for her. 
And my friend told me the story of what happened one day that week when she was trying to practice contemplative prayer. So one of the things that she and many have found is that it can be helpful to focus on a word. One word that you keep coming back to to kind of clear and refocus your brain when your thoughts begin to wander. And so one day she decided that in addition to having this word, she would also try to do something mindless to do with her hands so that she might be able to focus a little bit better on her prayer. And so she decided she would, weed, she would pray while she was weeding her tomato plant bed. So she plops down in the dirt, begins ripping out these weeds, and the whole time her internal dialogue is something like this. Okay, God, I'm here. It's me just showing up. I'm hoping you're going to show up too. Trust, right, trust. That's the thing I'm supposed to be thinking about, trusting you. Trust, trust. Right, trust. God, God, maybe you could remind me of some of the times that you've been trustworthy in the past. Oh, wait, no, I'm not supposed to be asking anything about you. Trust. Okay, come back. Trust. As I said, she will be the first to tell you she's not great at contemplative prayer. But somewhere between the tomato plants with her fist full of weeds and her brain full of ramblings and her heart hurting, She felt God say to her, it's okay that you don't trust me right now. I'm not asking you to trust me right now. I'm just asking you to let me abide with you. Let me be with you. Give me a chance to demonstrate my trustworthiness by letting me abide with you. Let me show you how I will keep showing up again and again and again. And that's what God does. He keeps showing up. From the very beginning, God has always been looking for us. In Genesis, when Adam and Eve hid because they were experiencing shame, God looked for them. He went to them, seeking them out, wanting to restore that connection of being with them. And thousands of years later, John described how God still comes to us. God made flesh in Jesus. God still reaching out, looking for us, and taking on the work of restoring his connection with us. There is nothing we can do that will make God decide he doesn't want to be in relationship with us. There is nothing we can do that will make God not want to be with us. Even now, God still comes to be with us. God still has an answer for our shame, for our fear, for our loneliness, and our isolation. That's the whole reason that Jesus made his journey to the cross. Jesus went to the cross so that we can experience being with God and God being with us. So that we will know that nothing can separate us. From God. 
Not our guilt, not our sin, not our shame. None of it is stronger than God's desire to be with us. My prayer for all of us this Lent is that we would hear God looking for us and calling out to us. My prayer is that we would respond to God's desire to abide with us. And my prayer is that we would learn to live with the God who is God with us. Thanks be to God. Amen.